Oh yeah, by the way, so I, I always look just usually on YouTube whether I can find anything about the guests. Oh. And um, I, I found a video of you with uh, with Eichel. Um, oh food, yeah. And at Sips. Sips. Yeah, I don't know. It's at the conference, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. And you said uh, you, you're trying to get him to p-hack all his measurements in his depression study. Uh, did you manage to do that? Yeah. Is well, he I, now p-hacking? Or? Yeah, he's he's trying. He's not maybe that good at it. We did this. This is a precursor, actually, to the measurement measurement paper. We did a workshop. And so one of the like shticks during the workshop is I would try to get him to engage in questionable measurement practices and make suggestions that, you know, he p-hack his instruments and stuff and then he would be like no i should be doing this and so it was like demonstrating what you could do versus what you should do we i think we're that was probably a little cheesier than acceptable for a conference but we did it anyway i, <laughs> I, I still haven't really been to a conference i guess because of the whole covid thing oh, um, man. i started my ph like basically like the second i had results uh covid happened so um <laughs> was- well yeah my students uh haven't been to a conference yet either and they're going to their first one this summer and it's really it's kind of sad because they've been pretty isolated and but Mm. it's they're excited to go to their first one but i think when we think about the pandemic and what it's done to our jobs we forget this something that's kind of insidious about it which is that it took away a lot of those little interactions with the broader community that make that at least for me give you like energy and interest it's just nothing. It's just like all Zoom screens. So I hope you get out to a conference. Now, some people don't like conferences, but I hope you get out to one soon and you like meet other people with shared interests and you're like, oh, this is more fun. I, yeah, I think I'm it is. really looking forward to there's There's one I'm going to go to in or July. I guess it's still a bit off, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to that one. So I guess today we'll be talking mainly about your paper, Measurement, Schmezum, measurement, measurement Questionable re- Measurement Practices and How to Avoid Them. In general, you know, I like to take a slightly more indirect route to talking about the topics. I'm just curious, like, how did you start kind of working? I guess you did your PhD on measurement. Um, and before that, you did a, a MA in quantitative methodology. Yeah, I'm just curious, how did you so early, I'd also say, get into kind of these methods topics? It seems to me, maybe that's the wrong assumption, but it seems to me as if these kind of like technical things like the, the how to do science is something that often comes a bit later, but you seem to have been interested in it pretty early on. Yeah, there is in a lot of the areas of psychology, there's undergraduate training in that. So when you're an undergraduate, you might take a course in social psychology or neuroscience or cognitive psychology. And so this shapes your interest. Like when you go to graduate school, you usually select an area to go into. And with quantitative methods, which is an area of psychology, quantitative psychology, there's no such class, except maybe you could take statistics in the statistics department, or maybe your psychology department has statistics or something like that. But you don't think of it as an area of psychology. So a lot of undergraduates would know when they're finishing up that you could specialize in that area. And I got kind of lucky... So then you might just learn about it on accident. That's kind of how it happened to me. I had taken extra statistics courses to get a Bachelor of Science. That was like an extra requirement. But I liked my statistics courses. I was surprised. I liked them more than I thought. And I was like, okay, well, I'll take the extra ones to get a Bachelor of Science instead of a Bachelor of Arts because that looks a little bit better on your final diploma. I mean, who cares about art, right? So then... um, Then you got an MA. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. That wasn't an option. They should make that an MS, shouldn't they? Um, So I was 
getting ready to graduate and I didn't I wasn't sure about graduate school or about getting a job or or whatever. And I met somebody who was doing a PhD in measurement. And he was like, oh, well, maybe you should consider going to graduate school in quantitative methods. You really like your statistics courses. And I was like, that's a thing. And he sent me this article. There was an article written by Steve Wise. I can't remember the title of it now. And basically, the opening paragraph was like, do you really like psychology and statistics, but you're not sure what area of psychology you would go to graduate school in? You should try quantitative psychology. (laughs) And I was like, this is me. Um, And so that person that I had met, they were doing a PhD internship at my undergraduate institution, but they were getting their PhD at James Madison University, where I did that master's degree. And he was like, I'm going to go defend my dissertation. Why don't you... I'll set up some meetings with you faculty and you can come and learn about the master's program in quantitative psychology. And I was like, okay. And I went there and everybody was really nice and um, they let me into the program and it didn't cost a lot of money. It was a funded program. And so I had thought, well, I could get a job, like an entry-level job, or I could go get this master's degree. And so I did the master's degree instead. And in the master's degree, I took measurement theory with Debbie Bandalos, who's a respected scholar in measurement. And I think I just like kind of hit the jackpot getting to take a course with such an amazing instructor. She's so clear. She's so interesting. I thought that measurement was like just the most interesting thing one could study. It has this mix of psychology and psychological theory, but also with quantitative methods. And I was like, this is it. This is what I need to do. And so then I Googled like PhD programs in measurement, and that's how I ended up applying where I applied and ultimately going to the University of Connecticut. And that that PhD program at the time was called Measurement, (laughs) Evaluation, and Assessment. So it was like really clear. They changed the name of it now. So it's like I feel homeless for a PhD program. It's called like Research Methodology Measurement and Evaluation now. So it still has the word measurement in it. But yeah, basically just stemmed from not having an area of psychology I felt super interested in but really being interested in the application of quantitative methods, but to psychology. It's not like I'm not interested in statistics, maybe for medicine or for other disciplines, because statistics are in a lot of disciplines. I really like psychology. And we have the like worst or hardest measurement problems. And so it's a good place to be if you're interested in measuring stuff. That's interesting. I mean, I guess I uh, I feel like now I've found something I'm really interested in. I want to work on thematically, topically um, for the next few years, at least. But I guess... I also have this thing where I was like, I, I'm generally interested in a lot of these things, but don't really know what exactly. And I guess I just took the route of just trying out <laughs> like half of the <laughs> things you can do more or less, but like working on like attention and voluntary action and body ownership. And I guess anything that wasn't clinical more or less. And but I guess it's kind of cool. Yeah. If you have like a, a general interest in psychology, then working, but like nothing in, specifically thematically then working on something that kind of is relevant uh, to all of those things does seem like a good route yeah it's our like meta area Um, yeah exactly we also have the history of psychology they're meta too they they can like do the history of psychology and anything in psychology so you can play around i guess in whatever area of psychology you want knowing that you're studying the methods that that area uses I'm assuming you, you still focus on kind of one kind of measurement or 
I don't know. I mean, I, I know very little about measurement. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I I do have so though it might seem small to the outside, I do have like an area of measurement that I focus in. Actually, our at McGill University where I work now, we have three professors in that work in measurement, but we feel like we're all doing very different things. So of course, yeah. My, my colleague Carl. Paul, he works on uh, response styles in this framework called item response theory. And so he's interested in like how people kind of respond in the same way to a survey. I mean, like they do like five, 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 or they get like lazy responding, stuff like that. Um, my other colleague, Hung Sung, he works in this aspect of structural equation modeling that is not your typical survey factor analysis stuff, but it's called components analysis. And I work in like more general psychometrics, so instrument uh, design, like questionnaires, surveys, and tests, how to evaluate instruments, how to build validity arguments and assess the assumptions of validity for those instruments, and some of the modeling aspects of that, especially when you have data collected from instruments that are really complex. So you have large data sets that are clustered in some way, or they come from geographically or culturally diverse groups, how you can tell that instruments are similar across those groups. I'm, I'm interested in a lot of things that are related to measurement modeling that would come with really big data sets. And I feel like that's really different than what they're doing, but <laughs> we're all three of us are in kind of psychometrics more broadly. So it seems small from the outside, but on the inside, we feel like we're all working on different things. Yeah, I mean, big, big data sets, you mean lots of variables and I mean, not necessarily like thousands of participants but more like or both or both but more that there's a lot of participants and they the structure of their responses might be complex so the participants might be clustered in countries or they might speak different languages but have given you responses to the same survey questions or they might be over time these all these kinds of data sets that you could think, well, I could analyze the data set and just look at it at the country level, or just look at it at the person level, or just look at it at the language level. Those are complex data structures because they have all these different ways that you can slice and dice the data. And we're thinking about how to analyze responses from instruments. There's different models that you can use to do that. So lots, lots of potential for p hacking there. Oh yeah, oh yeah, p hack your heart out. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, as I mentioned, the, the 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 paper of yours that I have read and that we'll talk about is the measurement measurement paper. Shall we just talk about the title first? So I think it's I, I I find it really interesting title because on the one sense I think it's almost the best title I've ever heard because in two words it summarizes the attitude of an entire field, and that's also the topic of the paper. And I don't think I know any other paper that basically does that in two words, um, at least not that I can think of. On the other hand, I you know I, I live in Germany right now and. I know lots of people who speak English as a second language, and I wonder how many of those actually get what it means. So, yeah, I'm just curious. Did, did you think of yeah, was that like yeah, a concern I never, or something? I, or? Right, it's a linguistically isolating title. So it, the title comes from yeah. So it's really common in English for somebody to say yeah, something yeah, that you don't care about, and then you're like, oh shma, you know, yeah. Oh, I need to go get my laptop. Oh, laptop shma top. You know, I don't know. It's just a thing. I don't know what the equivalent is in other. Is there an equivalent in another? Uh, let me think. I mean, of I, this, I'm, like I'm some little mock, mocking thing you say. So I wonder where... whether there's something like that in German. Um, if 
feels like there is, but I couldn't tell you what it is. But yeah, it's it, it's, yeah, just, it, it's interesting because it's one of those things that, yeah, to native speakers, it's the most obvious thing what it means. It's a pretty and, cliche title. Like a lot of fields, if you Google this, you'll, feel, oh, really? you'll see a lot oh, of like my friend that. who's okay. a philosopher is like, oh, yeah, we have a famous philosophy paper that has this kind of title. Like I think oh, it's okay. sort of a cheap trick, but it comes from... So it's actually how Iko and I met. So Iko's the co-author on the paper, Iko Freed. And we didn't know each other in real life. We only knew each other on Twitter. And we were chatting on Twitter, not privately though, like in Twitter threads, we were chatting about measurement. And somebody was complaining, I guess, about this these instruments and a paper. I could dig up I could dig up the tweet. It's, it's still there somewhere. And, they were like, oh, yeah, or, you know, there's all these problems with the paper. And then somebody's like, yeah, but they're, look at these measurement problems. You know, these surveys are bad or, or something like that. And I just responded and said, measurement, measurement. Like, just who cares? Who cares <laughs> yeah. about that? That's, and it's like me being sarcastic because I'm the person on this thread who really cares. Like, that's what my research area is. And Ico was on this thread and he sent me a private message. And he was like, would you want to make a symposium for a conference called measurement, measurement? And we'll invite people to come and talk about the problematic measures in their areas, like the measurement that they they see going on. And I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So we made this symposium called Measurement Measurement for the Association of Psychological Science Conference. Oh, I can't even remember where it was that year. How long ago this has been? It's been three or four years or something. And we met there for the first time in person. And then we had this symposium and... Uh, it was quite well attended, and we talked about different presenters, talked about different measurement things. And so the title just came from me kind of, yeah, just linguistically joking around, being like, oh, sh measurement. And I, we weren't sure if we would call the paper that, but we eventually gave a workshop at SIPS, the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science Conference, that was about that more directly. And then that's, and then we were like, you know, we should write a paper about about this issue. And so we just kept the title. It's sort of polarizing. Like when I pulled my friends, they were like, it's half or like, it's terrible. Yeah. And the I other half were like, it's great, but it, it is there to stay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it has, it does have a subtitle, uh, which is questionable measurement practices and how to avoid them, uh, which also sounds like that J.K. Rowling film, <laughs> uh, the yeah. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. The just whole the title is just like a cliche after a cliche. I know it's, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of cheap. Um, well, I mean, it works, right? I, I I read the paper. I mean, for one, because I talked to Ico and read some of his some of his other stuff, and because I thought, oh, that sounds like an interesting title, right? Um, <laughs> okay, good. So I guess I guess for me it worked. Um, okay, that's funny that you. I, I was going to ask like how you two met because you know, for, for preparing the, the the one with Aiko, I knew roughly like where he was when. And then I looked at your CV and it's like, doesn't look yeah. like they've ever been like in the same continent, even <laughs> like uh, apart yeah. from maybe a conference. I was really wondering like how you met. But, on um, Twitter. Yeah. I, th I think a lot of people meet Aiko on Twitter. <laughs> He's very yeah, you can find your like measurement people on Twitter. We had met at the conference and then we did the workshop and then... I had him, I invited him as a speaker at, at McGill. And so he's been to Montreal, but to write the paper, we met up in Glasgow. We like, as you do. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's, it was kind of a wild, a wild ride, but we were like, why don't we meet for one week and turn this workshop into a paper? 
And so we oh, really? like, hold uh, up not, at not University of Glasgow. Like you happen Glasgow. to both be in Glasgow. No, no, no. We actually... planned. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, we <laughs> planned cool. to meet there. And it was a sort of neutral area. I needed to be there, I think, anyway. I was giving a talk at University of Glasgow. And I was like, hey, I'm getting a lot closer to you than I normally am. Why don't we meet up? So he came out for like a week or something. And we holed up in Lisa Debreen's office. She's a professor at University of Glasgow. She gave us her office. And we wrote the paper on her dry erase board. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Um, so maybe I guess we've kind of been dancing around the topic now for 15 minutes or something. Um, can you just uh, provide a brief summary of the paper just so people who are not familiar with it get a rough first idea of what this is about and then we can actually talk about it in a bit more detail? Yeah, so well, getting back to a little bit about where the idea for the paper came from, we were invited to give this measurement workshop and I didn't want to give a workshop on how to create an instrument or how to do validity research on an instrument. There's a lot of textbooks written about that. That's kind of a well-trodden topic in psychology. But I had done some meta-science work that made me think about measurement a little differently, particularly what are people actually doing when they use, score, analyze, and report on instruments. And I just found that it was like really lacking, getting basic information about instruments, evaluating whether or not they seem to make sense at all, could be quite difficult. And so that's that whole like, huh, is this like measurement kind of aspect of it. And so we decided to do a workshop that focused on good reporting and transparent practices of instrument use, instrument analysis, um, instrument interpretation. And so that's what the, the paper talks about. It doesn't talk about necessarily how to make a good instrument or how to make a good measurement. It's talking about the lack of information that we have on instruments. Like, so when an author uses an instrument in a paper, you might not know much about it. They might not say what the instrument was like, how long it was, how they statistically analyzed it. So all the things that you use as stimuli or instruments get turned into numbers eventually. So where did those numbers come from? There's just no information. And so part of the paper is just convincing the reader, this is a big problem. Like it's really common in psychology just to sort of snow over the measurement parts and get to the punchline. And we go through why this is a problem. So it's a problem because you can't evaluate if the instruments are any good which is not something we should just accept at its face. We don't accept that hypotheses are just good. We shouldn't accept that the instruments are good. But if you have more information, you can evaluate the instruments. And so it talks about what information you should report so that other people can read your paper and get their questions answered about your instruments. Because the status quo is, if you're reading a paper, you would have lots of questions about the instruments. So where did this come from? How long is it? How was it administered? And that's the questions that need to be answered in the paper. So then it's just like, answer these questions, you're good to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems to me that the one way to describe the paper briefly is almost to say like, you know, you draw this analogy to questionable research practices and call it questionable measurement practices and say like the whole, like all these solutions kind of that we've come up with in that domain kind of center around transparency and being open about what you're doing. Just please also do that with your measurements. Yeah, exactly right. And there's been a lot of focus on statistics. So how you included participants or not, all the things that you can raise questions about with statistical analyses. Borrowing from that, we should do that about our instruments too. The scrutiny about our instruments has been kind of mild and we just want to take it up a level. 
Yeah, it's it's funny. I once kind of randomly uh, took like a physics course. I mean, it's a longer story, but I once uh, took like a experimental physics course or something like that. Uh, at least the first few lectures. And um, what really struck me, so this was after my psychology bachelor's, and what really struck me is that the first thing basically the instructor said was, I don't exactly know what the topic is, but it was, you know, something like, okay, here's this thing we want to measure and we're interested in this thing. And we can say that, you know, our measurement has this level of precision. So given this level of precision, this is the kind of uh, conclusion we can, you know, we can draw conclusions to this kind of extreme. And just this kind of like very, you know, as you talk about in your paper, this was, I think, about like physical length or something, something that's pretty easy to observe. But it, it just struck me whilst I was sitting there going like, I don't think I've, anyone's ever, I mean, sure, we've talked about methods and we've talked about, I mean, stats and how you measure things. Like we have talked about that in our like design of psychological study module, but never to this level of like, what can we actually measure with this thing? It just, it just struck me like a much more formal and precise way of talking about measurement that I just hadn't really come across to some extent in psychology yeah i have i taught a measurement course last year and we did talk about um, the standard error of measurement and how you can use that to think about the precision of a score and putting confidence intervals around people's scores like say you answered a survey and you got a score of 10 we could use the reliability of their survey responses to estimate the precision of your response and that confidence interval might be like from i don't know Two to 18. <laughs> so like, actually, you, you can actually quantify it. But the problem and this makes a lot of other assumptions about your instrument that aren't just related to the reliability. So it doesn't answer all of the questions. But most students will not take in their undergraduate or graduate training a course where they learn about that stuff. So there's some of that formal approach to measurement in psychology, but it's woefully underrepresented in curriculum. And there aren't very many people who study it who could teach it. And this is a kind of long-standing crisis in psychology that there's not enough people. There's a lack of support for training people formally in methods to research our methods. There's not very many PhD programs where you can specialize in that. So then that means there's not very many people who go back out and become faculty to teach the students. And so a lot of times when you have methodological training in PhD programs, those courses might be taught by people who are not experts in that area, which I don't think you have to be a world-renowned expert to do a good job teaching a class, but there creates this like general lack of expertise in our whole discipline. We're like really siloed into our own little communities just like how we have disciplinary silos, but we would think that like foundational training and methods, research methods, measurement and statistics would be for all psychologists. But that's not really the case. That's not how it plays out in our graduate programs. Yeah. I mean, um, I guess I, I had like a, a few points I wanted to ask about teaching stats later, but I guess we can just do it now whilst we're at it. Okay. Um, uh, maybe, maybe first a caveat, whenever I talk about like education in psychology, like I, I did do a bachelor's in psychology, but I've never been particularly, how should we say, conscientious in my attendance of lectures, um, <laughs> especially not for statistics. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so um, I, I just want to say like when I say like I didn't learn much of this, it might just be because I didn't go to the lectures. I mean, so I did a degree in, in the UK. In the UK, you have this British Psychological Society and they do require you to take a certain amount of 
modules in methods and stats. Um, so you can't you know, just do topic and that kind of thing. Yeah, for me, the weird thing was my master's was a, I did a kind of fairly, at least in Europe, it feels like it's a, it was a fairly unusual and unique master's and that we could basically do whatever we wanted. It was called Brain and Mind Sciences. And they're just like, choose any module you want from like this whole list of master's programs at UCL at the time. And I mean, there was even one module I wanted to take that wasn't on the list from computer science. And I was like, can I do it? It's like, sure, <laughs> just do whatever you want, basically. So there was like no requirement there. And of course, I didn't choose anything. <laughs> oh, okay. any kind of methods. I see, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, so I just wanted to have that as a brief carriage at the beginning. Even though I don't know anything about anything, that's maybe not necessarily an indicament of the British education system, oh. other than that they don't require attendance. But the, the actual thing... So I've I've saw that you do teach intro to stats courses or intro to methodology courses and that kind of thing. And I had a, a look and I mean I just typed your name into Google and then oh on, no oh yeah here we go no it's I think uh, you probably like this uh, on page three or something it was your ratemyprofessor.com profile and uh, it was very positive uh, so I just wrote down one quote there which was from a intro to stats course i think someone said literally the best prof ever she's, mm -hmm. she's she somehow made statistics engaging somehow. so my question is how how well <laughs> yeah um i've taught so i have a couple courses that i teach and that class is a unique one i teach graduate level courses in measurement and in uh, multi-level modeling or hierarchical linear regression those are small courses like 20 students or something their data analysis courses. Intro stats is my big lecture, first year undergraduate course. So in Canada, this is like 18 year olds or 19 year olds on their first day of university. And yeah. I call it baby stats. Um, and it's like you learn all the basic, like half of the course is descriptive statistics, like the mean, the variance. And then we do t tests, we do one little tiny ANOVA. And one tiny little one predictor regression. So it's not complicated statistical modeling. It's baby stats. It's big, 200 to 400 people. It's like a rock concert. It's in a lecture hall. I wear a mic. Um, they're all out there. They're little faces. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just like a sea of people then, right? Yeah, it's a sea of people. Um, I don't know what I do to make the course engaging exactly. I mean, I think uh, one aspect of it. I like teaching the course. So a lot of faculty don't want to teach this course. And I took it on readily. I remember getting interested in stats as an undergrad. It was disparaged by my comrades that it was going to be terrible. And I quite liked it. And I thought, well, this is my chance to do that for those other students out there who maybe aren't sure if they want to take it. So I, I do bring a lot of energy to it. Like I'm interested in it. I'm, I'm excited about it. I do. I like psych myself out. Like just before you, you know, if I were a rock star going to a rock concert, I don't like do cocaine before I teach, but I, you know, I slap myself around and like try to, yeah, yeah, I know. Right. We'll see maybe after tenure. Um, but I like try to psych myself out for it. Um, so I think I show up with some interest and engagement. I, I don't think that's a zero for students. I I've done some research into student motivation and having like an interesting and enthusiastic instructor, uh, students pick up on that. But I do a lot of other stuff that's just like 
good practice. I have a lot of real-life examples. I ask students to contribute examples. I have a lot of in-class problem-solving, so students like would take some time to talk to each other about a problem, and then they would have to solve it. They can come up and share, you know, Back when we were in the real, we would clap. You know, if a student came up in front of the whole class and worked out a problem, we would clap for them. Uh, I'd ask them their name and say, oh, you know, you're a temporary professor. Just do things to make it feel like we're all learning here and we're having a good time instead of just like them all sitting there blinking and the lights are low and the projector is on. Um, actually, one of the things that I think is probably most successful in that class that has nothing to do with me is that I assign homework for every chapter I teach and they have to do it within a week and a half. And that sounds like something students would hate. But in a class where a lot of them are worried about learning the material, getting regular feedback from their homework takes it down a notch. And so a lot of my evaluations are like, it was a lot of homework, but doing it every week kept me on top of it. I couldn't fall behind in this class. This was the class I made sure not to fall behind in. So I think there's just some like plain old good practices of teaching, which is like giving students a lot of opportunities to practice, giving them prompt and quick feedback. There are some redos and do-overs in the class. If they don't do well, they can try again. You know, having two midterms and a final so they could drop one of their low midterms. Those kind of things that just kind of keep students going in the face of stuff that they might not think they're doing very well at or that they're not very interested in. If you can take the stress down, students will like your class more. I think that's a part of it. Yeah. I mean, like one, one comment that I, I saw like in a few of the reviews was also they said something like she wants us to do well or something like that. Mm. And I guess that kind of plays into this whole thing. Like it's not like the professor's trying to, you know, you against them and they're trying to punish you and make it hard, but like just make it fun and engaging and yeah, I tell them it's not a trick. I, You know, it's weird. A lot of students think that the professors are trying to trick them, like that they're going to write test questions. Well, I think some of this, my perspective comes from my PhD is actually from a school of education. So I've had some formal training in how to teach and pedagogy and assessment and stuff like that. You're basically like the only professor who actually knows how to <laughs> yeah, teach. It's a little, yeah. it's like a secret because I'm in a psych department now and like, I hope nobody finds me out. But yeah, I mean, I ask, I check in with students, I... When, you know, when they're not doing well on a homework, I slow down a little bit. There's a lot of things you can do if you really care about them learning the material and not about the grade curve. That also makes them feel a little less stressed out in the class. And so, yeah, I do. I'm like, I want you to. Well, I think it's true. I always tell them, I know you think you don't. This is the useless class you're taking. But statistics are every day in your life. This is actually the most important class you're taking. And you're gonna like it, damn it! You know it's kind of my approach to approach to these guys. You're gonna like it. Statistics, I mean, they're every day when you open up any app or look at anything on your computer or do anything, catch a plane, catch a bus, catch a train. All of this is related to statistical models are used in so many aspects of your life. Like, get on board. Don't delay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really cool that that they enjoy that because I guess yeah, I guess it can seem daunting to have like. A few hundred 18 year olds who i don't know do they have to take that course as part of their they do yeah it's yeah. like you said it's a requirement of to get you know the canadian psychological association american psychological association requires a certain amount of classes and statistics so they have to take two and they have to take the baby stats before they take the i don't know toddler stats or whatever the next one is yeah i mean the the crazy thing here is like when i started the our doctoral program in, in Hamburg, it's where our professor was first and then we moved to Heidelberg. It's at a medical university and I don't know what it's like in the, I guess, education system, always different, but different, uh, but 
at least in Germany, medicine, I don't think involves any kind of numbers, let's say. And <laughs> um, as, at least very little, let's say, because they had like this in the doctor program there. I mean, it's not really a doctor program because you in Europe, you know, you usually do your master's and your PhD separately mm-hmm. um, and you often move institutions for that kind of and that kind of stuff but we had to take like to get a phd a few courses and the 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 stats course was basically what you just described um so we were you know in our phds and had to go to those lectures where they told us like what a mean is i was like oh god but some people i guess needed that i think it's good for you they tried to talk about in our graduate stats course taking some of that stuff out and i was like no baby stats for everybody Baby stats for undergrads, baby stats for grads, but it feels baby stats for postdocs. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how much you actually know. The best but... thing is there's even some statisticians um, at the yeah. hospital doing their PhD who have to take that course. Yeah, yeah, I mean, some people really do have the background training and maybe they could skip that first course, but a lot of people could hear a good amount of that stuff again. I learn something new true. every time I teach it. You know, I learn something new about the mean sometimes. There's yeah. always more you can learn about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I try not to look at my my professor very often. Yeah, no, I mean... The only one I remember is the one, the guy was like, she says like a lot. She's really juvenile. Really? Okay, I didn't yeah, that, that was one of them. And I was like, okay, thanks. I mean, yeah. I am like six years older than that person probably. So the fact that I'm not just like super old, I guess, is a problem for them. They like only respect their professors who are like fully yeah. gray haired or something. Yeah, exactly. Just because I'm not like three times as old as you doesn't yeah. <laughs> doesn't mean I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, I've, I don't know whether that kind of stuff exists in Europe. Um, I don't know. I've, I've never like... I've heard Those of stereotypes, thing. you mean, or uh, no? I mean the 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 kind of system, like ratemyprofessor.com or something like that. I don't know whether it exists. Like I've never seen it. Let's say at least. And um, yeah, it's not university sanctioned in any way. So yeah, yeah. Like, so there might be twenty ratings on there for me, but my class has four hundred students. So it's I don't think a lot of it depends on some universities. There's like a culture I think of using it more. I mean, it's good. Like if if. Every, kind of if everyone does it then it's just feedback and you can learn from it but i guess it's a bit like if you ever like look on amazon at the uh you know they can often be very insightful reviews right often you can yeah. have like this thing but like you know is great but here's this one problem that really ruins it and you can like oh i'm really glad they said that but often if you look at something and you really want to make sure you get the right thing you just and there's like different versions of different companies available you just I just end up going like, I can't buy any of these because they're all bad. They all have this fatal flaw in them <laughs> and <laughs> I can't buy anything now. So I guess it's similar. Like if, yeah, I guess if this kind of feedback is not required, then just you'll get random people who for whatever reason yeah. decided to rate it. But also like yeah. it, you know, Miguel, there's not that many people who teach this class. So what are you going to do? Just go and rate my professor and hear that they're terrible. And then you have to go take the class with them anyway. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It depends on the class, I guess. Like, if you're picking an elective, I guess you could look for a class with a good professor and pick that. But for this required class, too bad. I'm yeah. the one person who teaches it in the fall. So, yeah, I mean, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, do you, one question I had, I think I might have actually talked with Ico about this. I'm not sure. I talked about it with someone. It might have been him. And that was the question of like how much methods and stats and that kind of stuff sh- should you even teach at an undergraduate level because or formal modeling or th- these kind of things right because i remember in my psychology course you know it felt at least as if 70 80 percent of the people wanted to do some sort of clinical work afterwards 
And if they basically heard of a variable or number, they started getting slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> and I don't know, I sometimes wonder, like, does it make sense to force people through this if they're, if they're just there to pass the thing anyway? Yeah, I just wonder, I don't know, like whether that kind of stuff makes sense or they just like, you know, learn how to pass the test. And then, I don't know, I don't know maybe at McGill, there's there's only good students who learn everything no, no. properly. But Definitely yeah. not. How do, you, how do you think about that kind of stuff? Um, I think at undergrad level, it's a little bit different than at the grad level where students are maybe getting a general degree and it. Uh, this is diff. This is different in Canada and the U.S. than it is in Europe, where the undergrad degree is more general and less specialized. But for people who want to be clinicians or people who are just getting a more general degree and they might not go any further in the discipline, I think having a a course or two in statistics that's focused on interpretation and information literacy and consumption is useful. I mean, again, like statistics are everywhere. You can't go through an election without seeing the standard error um, or a confidence interval. And so that, I think, though, we don't have that approach. Like even in my course, it's not that focused on information and statistical consumption. It's, it's focused on like, how do you calculate a variance? So maybe that's not the most useful way to teach those courses at the undergrad level. And if you're a clinician, you might like to be able to read a paper about a new technique and read the methods section and not think that it's just totally in another language. Like if you've got some basic understanding about statistical tests and how to interpret them, that would probably be quite useful. So thinking about it from an information literacy perspective is probably better than how we do it now. And a few courses, though maybe not a lot, could go a long way toward that. I taught online in a master's level sort of like program certificate course for ongoing professionals. So they could take this. They were working, but they could take this certificate. Uh, it was less than a master, a full master's degree. And one of the courses in there was a research methods course, but it was designed not for them to be able to carry out the research. It was designed for them to be able to like read and consume and interpret and evaluate different kinds of research studies so that they would know about different designs. And there's a, a little bit of a statistical section in there about like what's a p-value, what's statistical power, because you see that in studies. So I do think that's useful even for people who are maybe going a clinical route, because a lot of the things that they're do, they're, there's this whole idea that we're empirically based. So we're using techniques that have been researched. And if this is like the medical doctors who can't read the studies about the medicines. They know so little about statistics that they can't even spot something like blatantly terrible. Well, I don't know how drinking red wine cures her cancer or whatever some of these like st stupid studies are in medicine, <laughs> medical research. So I think it's kind of the same thing. I mean, I often wish like, you know, medical doctors should have some basic training in statistical literacy. How do they figure out? I think it's just like they figure out what to do through word of mouth. I don't think they like read research studies and base their medical decisions on it. They don't know how. They like talk to their other doctor friends and then their doctor friends are like, oh, well, what about this new drug? And then they just start prescribing it. I mean, that is not the best way to do it, I don't think. I mean, if I think about the life, I don't I don't think they have the time, even if they had the, like, even if you have someone who has all the skills. I mean, if you Yeah, have to right. They're not going to like, they don't have like, their like read research day. I mean, I hardly even have that day. Yeah. Um, at the graduate level, I think it's different. If you're engaged in empirical work as a part of your thesis, I think we could basically do away with any content training and only have methods training. And people do all the content training in their lab. 
that's a European versus, you know, in North America, there's more course level formal training than a PhD in Europe or Australia or something. It's all just research. Maybe the formal training comes from the master's degree, like you were saying, but yours is like pick your own adventure. So <laughs> I mean, that's like, I think I those this. could be methods and statistics courses. And then when you go to do your research and you get that um, content training through the lab or through reading the literature or through running studies. Actually, neuroscience is an interesting case where there's a lot of necessary technical training. So if you're doing fMRI or um, even EEG and stuff, you it might be useful to have some technical formal training in some of that via coursework or via like lab practicum or something a little more structured because there's a lot of technical knowledge involved there. Like, I don't know, do you just want everybody kind of learning how to do that on the streets? It seems not ideal. Yeah, I always find, yeah, I find it difficult also talking about these things in general because basically whenever someone tells me to, I have to do something, I don't want to do it, even if it's a really good <laughs> idea for me and I would have chosen it anyway. Um, I guess I'm just not, for, for someone who's basically spent most of his life, basically all of his life in formal education until now, <laughs> I, have a, I sometimes wonder why I do it. I don't even like being taught anything. I just like kind of, you know, just let me be and like figure out my stuff on my own. But it's obviously also a very inefficient way because, I don't know, I, at least I imagine if I'd paid more attention in stats, then I would have have a much better foundation and actually, rather than having to learn it during my PhD, basically. Yeah, it's probably not very clear to students why it's relevant. I spend a lot of time in my intro class telling students that statistics is like a part of the backbone of psychology because a lot of psychology is based on research and research uses statistics. And they don't even really know that. You know, they, they don't necessarily understand that when they chose the major. They thought I like, definitely it didn't. just seemed interesting or something. They didn't realize that there was a lot of that there were a lot of statistics involved. So some of it is, I think what you're talking about is not having the autonomy to pursue your own interests in education, which is really important for student motivation. Like it's a fundamental aspect of being motivated is feeling like you have the autonomy to choose things that you're interested in. And I think like it's probably still in part some basic fundamental training and methods and statistics while also giving students that autonomy to learn and apply things that they're interested in. But man, professors can be really bad salespeople for their content. It's like, tell students why it's important. They need to know that. That's an important, tell them why it's important. Tell them how it's going to help them in their studies or help them find the aspects of it that are interesting. I think that's like a huge part of teaching that a lot of professors just check out on. Maybe they don't understand it or or just assume that everyone knows. I don't know. Yeah, right. That's a big problem in the academy. Or professors even just always the, assume you know, you've knows. chosen this. If it's an elective model, it's like you've chosen this, like you probably know why this is like yeah, okay. you wouldn't be yeah. here or yeah yeah i don't know um i guess my slight excursion has been slightly longer than <laughs> i wanted it to be yeah so to get back to measurement mm -hmm. um yeah is transparency then i mean more transparency is that kind of just i mean you, you kind of called it a necessary step or requirement or something like that for you even to be able to evaluate all the other stuff and i guess that's kind of like the point you make right just just tell us like kind of what you did why you did it and then we can see whether that decision made sense rather than just saying we measured depression and then you maybe mention like a one of the many scales you used or whatever yeah it's um i think it, it comes from this 
desired. I want to increase rigor. And a good way to increase rigor is to evaluate what's going on and to see how it could be better. And then you can't evaluate what's going on because you don't have any of the information. So transparency is this necessary but not sufficient aspect of research reporting, which it, it's a hard sell because if you're more transparent, it's like everybody can see that you suck. So say you suck. <laughs> this old system of not being transparent might work well for you because you can suck kind of in plain sight and not really mention it and maybe nobody will notice and then you just get to go along and publish your paper. Whereas if we have the expectation of transparency, you have to be like, I suck. I use sucky instrument number two. I use sucky <laughs> instrument number four. It, you know, So it's like, it's a hard sell, but if we make it unacceptable to just uh, leave out all this important information, the idea is that eventually it'll raise the tide of the of the rigor because there's be this information it'll help you like call out the things that suck. Whereas it's hard to tell things are sort of sucking but they're hiding. I guess in the papers they're it's unclear and sometimes things are fine. It's just that it's not reported. There's another whole aspect of this transparency thing which is we can't replicate or reproduce research if we don't have basic information about the instruments, about the materials, about the stimuli, about the procedures. Like you can't even redo what the people did in the some of the background or other research I was working on when we were writing this paper was looking at the instruments used in large-scale replication studies. In the first large-scale replication study, the Reproducibility Project Psychology, they couldn't replicate, replicate, meaning run the replication in multiple studies because they couldn't figure out what instruments had been used in the original studies. In yeah. one study, they later found out that they used the wrong one because what was reported in the paper wasn't really quite clear. And so they contacted the authors and the authors were like, well, it was this. And then later they found out it was actually something else. So there's all this basic stuff. Like if you're interested in measurement, you're interested in psychometrics, you're interested in like the latest, most interesting latent variable model you can't even do any think about that stuff because all the basic information is missing from the literature you can't yeah. you can't even figure out what happened i mean sometimes you can't even figure out what they were studying or measuring this whole issue comes yeah well so before i wrote this paper with ico i wrote this other paper that's a systematic review of instruments used in papers published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, JPSP. That journal is pretty prestigious in that field. And I read a bunch of those papers and just tried to figure out what they were measuring and if the instruments had any empirical evidence for their use. And it was a mess. It's like there would be six studies in a paper and say all the studies are measuring self-esteem. There'd be six different self-esteem uh, instruments in every study. Like, why? In one of the studies, two of the instruments from a previous study might be combined to make a totally new instrument of self-esteem. I mean, things that are just really bizarre and haphazard. And why well, I call this, this is measurement. It's not measurement, it's measurement. It's like just some proxy approach for developing instruments. It's not systematic. It's haphazard. It's probably related to p-hacking. It's probably out of convenience or out of interpretability or out of finding results that you think are going to help you publish the paper. So I read like 30 or 40 of those papers published in that journal. And it 
this is sort of like come to Jesus experience for me, where I was really interested in all these psychometric modeling things, but I couldn't even figure out what was being studied and how it was being measured. So like, say the study measured four things. They're all slightly related. I don't know. They could be like self-esteem and self-efficacy and self-concept and self-determination. So like there's this long lit review. It's super theoretical about all these things. And you get to the measure section and there's like six things. They're all sort of kind of named what the four things in the lit review are named. You can't tell if they're all the different or the same. And then you get to the results section and there's like three three results. So there's four things in lit review, six things in the measure section, three things in the results section. And that's when this whole issue of like, we should, why isn't it that we're detailed and systematic with how we select, report, use, analyze our instruments? And I, I had a few, um, my co-authors on that review paper that came before the measurement paper. I mean, one of them was reading it and he was like, I cannot believe this is published. And so when you really dig into it, it's like, flabbergasting how much is missing or how haphazard things seem to be or how it just seems that like nobody cares or nobody even notices that your instrument of self-esteem was like slightly different in every study you ran yeah that's not a good sign yeah so this transparency coming first like to me it feels like it inherently undermines rigor but when we were working on that paper, the reviewers really pushed us to think about what's the difference between bad and, tra- and intransparent or the fact that you can't tell. And so we really tried to separate our thinking into like, you don't have the information, so you can't tell. And that's questionable. That's different than you can tell what's going on and you think it's bad. Yeah. I mean, you can't even do that, right? That's kind of the point. Yeah. You- yeah. So we, we kind of had to pull those apart a little bit. But my experience reading the literature is like, oh, I can't tell what's going on. And this is also very bad. Yeah. Like, it's it must even, be yeah. bad. It's almost but... like it's not even bad. It's just it's, it's, it's not even it's yeah. like good enough to be bad almost. Yeah. Um, to, to maybe make this slightly more concrete and maybe also get a bit of advice for my own stuff. I thought we could. So I kind of as I was reading your paper. Uh, so I mean, I'm in my PhD and we we published a, a COVID paper. Um, right at the beginning of the pandemic and as i was reading your paper i thought hmm some of these problems (laughs) i recognize maybe that some of those things we did or didn't do that uh, maybe we should should have done uh so i I was just curious maybe we could just talk about some of the things we did then maybe like maybe you can say like what we should have done uh what we should have reported maybe more or yeah i mean i I think this is a good exercise whatever i talk about like present on treasure man i always say sharing is caring and i share a time that I engaged in the, you know, got lost in the garden of forking measurement paths and did some p-hacking adjacent kind of thing. So I think it's good to to do this kind of exercise. So in that study, it was, it was basically about risk perception of COVID. Like, how likely do you think is you're going to get COVID or you're going to infect someone else? And those were kind of, the, and we were kind of interested in just like, and so this was like right at the be- I mean, right at the beginning. And this case means we collected data on the 11th of March, 2020. Oh, wow. Which is almost exactly two years ago. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. everything shut down here on March 13th. I, yeah, I think we were basically... Like the world sort of really shut down. I think basically, down. so we were at a hospital and our, um, like the institute director said something like, probably going to shut down pretty soon so i guess everyone take their stuff this week wow <laughs> so yeah, like yeah. On that was the, the week yeah 
uh yeah so that was basically we're, we're just like should we do something about this maybe especially because my supervisor had some stuff about optimism bias how people think like bad stuff is less likely to happen to them than to someone like them mm. and good stuff is more likely to happen than to someone like them uh so people kind of have these like just skewed perceptions about risk and how that might lead to people potentially not actually you know distancing and all this kind of stuff because i think oh like i'll be fine that kind of stuff and so we were just kind of curious like is any of this there and maybe it's also like we i mean we were super careful about like p-hacking that kind of stuff right like we didn't like do it i guess i wouldn't be talking about this if we did <laughs> we didn't yeah, like, do right. any well at least that i'm aware of uh we were like i mean we had open data open code some pre-reader stuff we replicated everything with a second data set collected at the same time and what it replicates and you know from that perspective i think we, we at least tried but there was for example the, the, the whole measurement thing is something i guess we largely for time reasons because it had to happen so quickly because we wanted to be before lockdown basically we just didn't have the time to really think about the measurement stuff maybe mm -hmm. explicitly the way that maybe you would let's say mm -hmm. and um maybe we should um so maybe so the question i kind of so the main kind of question we have is like how likely are you going to get COVID infected with COVID? and then we had for that question we asked it for four different time horizons like within the next two weeks within the next two months within the next year or within your life then we also had, and we also, we always asked that for you and for someone similar to you. Same age, same sex, and same geographical location. So three factors that are kind of relevant for this kind of stuff. Um, or at least mortality was, you know, the older you are, the more male. I think those were risk factors for getting severe symptoms. And then where you are obviously matters um, for getting infected. Um, so that was the one thing. Then the other thing was, how likely are you going to infect someone else? And that was split six six different contexts. So your family, how likely are you going to infect friends or colleagues, someone like while well, commuting or that kind of stuff, uh, and something else. You know, that was the kind of thing we had. And what we did is we then took, because this was a fairly large data set with lots of variables, to kind of be consistent throughout the entire thing, we basically said, okay, we're going to take the average per participant of the four time horizons for get infected and the six social contexts for infect others. And that's kind of our main independent variable kind of. And I think we did report a Cormos alpha. <laughs> I think we did do that, but we're slowly ending basically what we did in terms of validating or whatever our measure. So I don't know, is, is that enough for you to say like, oh, if you have like these four items that make up the main thing, you should have done this and this and this, or do you need more information or? Um... Yeah, well, I think so. I'd have to read your paper. This this goes back to these two issues of like transparency versus did you do like a really good job? And those are separate issues. So I think like the least transparent thing I could imagine you guys writing is something like we use these four items. Crump's box alpha. <laughs> you know, it's like not very much information about where those items came from, how they were developed. Did they come from a previous study? Did you guys make them yeah, up? Yeah, literally just made it up. Yeah, we didn't. I don't think we said that. I they think don't normally say. They should say. Yeah, no, they should say we developed these items, which people don't say. And you're kind of like, <laughs> it well, where did they come? too grand, come? though. We did develop. Yeah. We was like, well, well, we. Th I know they should just say we've just we just made these up. That's like my <laughs> yeah. choice. My top choice of what authors should say. They should say we just we made these up. We spontaneously came up with this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was obviously more thought through, but basically that's what it is, right? We yeah, didn't, yeah. yeah. So being clear about that, I think, is important. And it's be important because if you just made something up, 
it might not be doing as good of a job as you would like because it hasn't been used a lot before. So it's important to say that because then, you know, in your limitations, you can say, well, we just made these items up. And so they they might, you know, I guess need more piloting. I mean, so we did like write that this the whole way of assessing comparative optimism has been done quite a bit. And we linked mm-hmm. to that, that this like general approach is this way. And we kind of apply it to this topic. But I guess the funny thing is like it didn't even, I mean, you know, we were obviously like, thinking about like what are we measuring and doesn't make sense but we didn't i guess it i mean there's not the limitations that this is a potential problem yeah yeah i mean i think that saying that this so there's this general idea in the other literature is a little bit different than there are these other instruments in the published literature with this kind of wording and we adapted it or changed this wording to be for the covid context that's different than we just made up the wording for the first time, or there's an instrument that already exists that has this exact wording and we're using it. So it's like kind of three scenarios that are all fine to do in your research, but it could be hard to tell when you're reading it what actually happened. So is it that these items are kind of based on items from other adjacent areas or areas of similar content? Is it that you totally wrote them anew? Or is it that it's an instrument that has been in use for a while with the exact same wording? And wording, knowing about how item wording is developed is really important for evaluating the instruments because items, their wording can dramatically impact how people respond to them. And yeah, so if you're just one of making it. fears always, just changing yes, the wording. Yes, yeah. yeah. If you're just making something up for the first time, um, it's more of a chance that people didn't interpret the question the way you thought. Or in the case of aggregation, they may have interpreted those questions quite differently. And when you aggregate them, you might be aggregating things together that don't make sense. And so what justifies your choice of aggregation? You know, alpha is a it's not the best way to think about that because alpha just gets higher with the more things you have, whereas a correlation coefficient doesn't. So looking at the correlation between the four things that you aggregated, the average correlation can be a little bit better than alpha. So there's some things that like maybe you could just do better because do they're better justification. That, yeah. yeah, there's those kind of things that are just maybe better justification. But there's also just like reading the paper and being like, oh, well, it seems like they just made these questions up. Did they like pilot them in any way? Did they review them in any way? How did they perfect them? <laughs> How do they know that people didn't read them and just think, I have no idea what this means? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I want. Yeah, I mean, so the yeah the answer in this case is just we just thought of like what would be a sensible question, and then we wrote yeah. it, and you know we also so we wanted to make sure that we it wasn't like country not particularly country specific what we found, and so uh, we all spoke German and English, so we had the whole thing in German and in English, and um in, in for English we collected data in the UK and the US, and um. You know, we just looked over it and went like, mm, makes mm-hmm. sense. <laughs> Seems yeah. about right. And I don't think that that's crazy. I think, you know, my ideal, I guess I'd say, well, we, we just made these items up and we reviewed their content and our research team for, reviewed their content for clarity and for wording. And we revised them, to, you know, to make them clear. It is the case. And I think it's okay to have these limitations in a study and publish it especially in the case of COVID, where you want to get this very timely, you know, it might be very time sensitive. It's okay to say, we reviewed these items for their content and clarity. We made some revisions to make sure they were 
you know, we had these t- two languages, we had speakers of both. Just a little bit of information about that can be helpful in the paper. It, it gives a little bit more confidence. But I I went through this exercise in my measurement class of making up an instrument and collecting data on it so that my students would have real data to analyze. And I did something I had never done before. Well, I had my home my students do it as a homework assignment. I had them interview somebody, uh, thinking aloud, a cognitive interview with all these items that me and my uh, teaching intern wrote, my grad student, Lindsay Alley. And the people reading those items thought and interpreted them in ways we never would have imagined. Yeah. Like, they just did not land the way we thought. They, I mean, we wrote some of them to be bad. Because it's like a, you know, it's a measurement class and we got to have some bad items in there. But wow. And especially the cultural diversity aspect. So how people from different cultures, we had students interviewed. They had to do two cognitive interviews each. We had quite a few students interview other international students. People really interpreting the items in ways that we, we didn't anticipate. And this is really common, and I think any psychologist would know, well, a couple, a bunch of PhD and master's level people wrote some questions, and then they gave it to the people in the hospital? Who's that? That's like my granny is in the hospital. My granny is from Kentucky. She calls black people colored still. Okay? Like, she's 94. Okay? like She could could be saying worse things at that age. (laughs) Yeah, no, she could. She's pretty mild. You know, she's a sweet granny in a lot of ways. But she probably wouldn't read the question the same way you did. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that aspect of it, even if you're not doing a lot of complex analyses, just having a little bit of room in your mind that what you wrote may not have landed. And if you just wrote it, that you reviewed it for clarity and that you wrote it is good to know. It's good to report that. You know, we developed these items. We reviewed them for clarity. We had people who spoke both languages review them. That was our best shot at it. I think it's okay to say that. You know, we reviewed, we we aggregated. I think justifying aggregation is important. We aggregated these because they were correlated highly. Or we separated them because they weren't correlated. Chromebox Alpha, um, I think, is does raise a lot of questions because it, it gets higher and higher as you have more variables. So it's not a good way to know if things are really correlated. You only had a few variables. So maybe in this case, it's not as much yeah, of a concern. But we're like, oh, our 20-item instrument i mean 20 items can be correlated at like 0.2 and still have a high chromebox alpha so that doesn't give you good information about that but you know you make a decision you justify it you say you know we didn't do a lot for this we these items look face valid for us we reviewed them they made sense to us they were correlated we aggregated them i think that's fine especially in a quick study but it would be nice if the person reading the paper kind of could tell that's what you did so that's the two different yeah. issues there. You could do more. You could always do more. You could develop that instrument for like five years. <laughs> you, know, you don't want yeah. to. Yeah, I guess in that case, it just, I guess it's maybe one of those like blind spots you have. It's like, like of course, we just made this up. Like it's, you know, this pandemic, like we, we, we've basically heard about this like two weeks ago. And suddenly like we realized like entire countries are going to close down. Of course, we didn't spend years. But yeah, I guess we could have just said that. Yeah. yeah. Or we base them off of these items off of this other area that you know if there's something kind of if there's framing of the questions thinking about you know having people think about different time frames there is probably some kind of measurement precedent for that that's reporting on those sorts of things like that you know it's just the kind of thing you could say oh well these other instruments it was loosely based off of this it's just good to know like where did they come from did they just come out of yeah that's fair enough yeah i mean i 
and you know, I obviously don't want to like give the idea that we didn't think about this at all, right? We did obviously talk about this quite a bit, and I think implicitly it's in there quite a bit that we made it up and why we made certain decisions, but it maybe wasn't quite as yeah clear as it could have been. Explicit, yeah. Well, that's one of the things about the open science movement that I think like because I'm thinking a lot about like what's the next generation of what people are going to care about. And, and you, you said like, Oh, you know, we had open data and we pre-registered and like you did that, you did those things because an open science movement told you they were good things to do. And so now I'm trying to push the open science movement to say, well, it's also good to like, make sure you dot all your I's and cross your T's about the instruments. You know, when you're writing your pre-registration that, that, that there's more details there than maybe you had thought in the past. So, and a lot of people, when they started pre-registering, they started thinking through the details of their analyses a lot more. It kind of requires you to do that. And they thought, oh, before you might've said something similar. Oh yeah, I mean, we really cared about the statistical test, but we didn't really think through too much about what we do ahead of time. And so we just did what we thought was best. And okay, that's, that's fine as long as you're honest about it. But the open science movement kind of pushed everybody to think about that aspect of it a little bit more. And so I think like something that Iko and I have been working on and I've been working on more generally is getting people to take that same kind of thinking and apply it to their instruments. And then people are like, oh, now we have to think about so many things. Yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. That's always what I have with open science and open code or whatever. And then sometimes the response is like, you know, like how much am I supposed to do? Like what do you want me to do? And then. I mean, somewhat confrontational facetiously, you can say like, well, you just have to do your job. Like, yeah, yeah, you just have to do all this do. stuff and it's your job, so just yeah, do it. Yeah, you know? <laughs> if you don't paid. like it, go do something else. <laughs> yeah, I know. People yeah. are like, oh, I revised, it took me like X amount of time to revise this paper. It's like, yeah, that's your gig. Yeah, it's still not that great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, it was funny, like when you mentioned that giving people, actually getting responses from people filling out a questionnaire or something can be really insightful. Um, for my bachelor's thesis project, I kind of random, randomly ended up doing something about blind people um, and uh, sleep problems and kind of psychiatric disorders. And because they were blind, uh, I couldn't just give them a questionnaire on a computer right. or give them a piece of paper. I mean, it was lots of effort to get the consent sheet in Braille, for example, and send that around the country. And anyway, so the and the way we did it is I called the people and I basically walked through the questionnaire with them, uh, with all of them. And what was really fascinating was just how different, as you mentioned, people reacted to things. I mean, there were some people, I don't remember what it was, it's been a while, but, you know, we had like a bunch of like uh, clinical questionnaires or whatever. I, I don't remember which ones they were, but... I think on average it maybe took 45 minutes to an hour or something to do the whole thing. And there was, you know, some people who did it in half an hour and one guy took two hours, something like that. Because every single time I'd ask him a question, he'd just start philosophizing about the wording of that question. Oh my gosh. And he'd be yeah. like, oh, well, I'm not really concerned about this problem. It's more that, you know, just yeah. like take everything apart. Whereas other people were just like, uh, three, two, <laughs> or whatever. And... I mean, how do you deal with that problem? It's, it's yeah, such, man, it feels like know. such a... Well, yeah, I, I every, mean, yeah, yeah, let's let's not overwhelm ourselves. When you really start <laughs> thinking about how people respond to questions, it feels like an infinite sea of uncertainty. Um, and it seems like we'll never be able to measure anything. But, you know, for example, 
in any given paper, when we just, when we make up a couple of items that we think are clear, having a few other people that are kind of different demographically pilot the items could be super helpful because that might help you. And we, I think we take at face value our questions a little more than we should when they're like just developed by the researcher because these other people read them and you can't go and have hundreds of or thousands of people read them because that would take too much time and think aloud as they're reading them. But you could do it with like five people yeah. and say, yeah. you know, most of these people interpreted the item the way we thought or, you know, we realized these two items were not interpreted the way we thought. That simple aspect of item development is woefully missing in the psychological literature. Like, we really just don't know if people interpreting the items the way we think. And we'll, like, look at the correlations of the items. We'll look at the item distributions. We'll factor analyze the items. We'll multi-level model the items. We'll do all these complicated statistical things to the items. And none of that stuff tells us if the people interpret them the right way either. They just tell us yeah. that the items are correlated. So I guess, I mean, that's, I guess, why I like to do not necessarily extensive piloting per se, but at least be not in the yeah kind of in the room with the people i mean I, I also do other stuff i don't really use questionnaires much um it's more about like decision making you have a few options you choose whatever you like most and you know um i, d I don't really use questionnaires much so but i really like being in the room and asking the people like so what do you think <laughs> afterwards and like what, you know, why did you you know i'm not judging i'm just like trying to make the experiment good like why did you do this or that or whatever and <laughs> I mean, there's always good. Yeah, be. I mean, I even wonder if, like, on a survey, if we just had a box of, like, did you understand this question? Or, you know, how often people would just be like, no, I didn't understand it. <laughs> like, I didn't even understand what you were asking me. Um, I think we kind of miss when we just make up instruments and that's kind of acceptable and we don't talk at all about how they were developed, how they were piloted, if there was any clarity, you know, you miss out on all that potential feedback from participants and sometimes it's fine because you know some things are easier or harder to measure than others sometimes the study's really strong in a lot of other ways and so you can't maximize all aspects of your study there's always trade-offs you know sometimes there's a limitation of your study which is that you just made up those three items and they all made sense to you and that seemed fine but I don't think that we should like encourage that or that that shouldn't be like the norm for how we do things. It should be like easy to tell that's happening. And then when it's happening, we should be a little skeptical. Um, I, I guess the thing also know, is that that's the measurement thing. The, the, the main, I mean, not solution to the problem, but kind of first big step that you propose by just being more open and transparent about what you actually did and where the questions come from and why you selected them, et cetera. That's not the labor intensive part of doing science, right? That just means you write an additional paragraph in your paper or whatever. Yeah, it's, right. It's right. a pretty quick fix for pretty substantial problem in that sense. You know, like in our entire COVID study, it was, you know, took quite a, in the end, then quite a bit to actually analyze this stuff properly and uh, make sure, you know, we're not peaking, et cetera, and um, to, to kind of have like a clear plan of how we're going to analyze this. And, you know, writing that we made up the thing would have been a sentence here and there. That, that's all yeah. it would have taken. Right? And then I think maybe. it's it's kind of akin to, though, like, it sounds like that at the surface, but it's akin to, so say you hadn't pre-registered and the results that you reported, you, you did 20 analyses and you reported um, with different versions of these variables aggregated different ways. 
And you found four of them were kind of interesting and confirmed your hypotheses and you reported them in the paper. And then I go, hey, you know, but you should just tell me all that other stuff you did. Right. Right. You don't want to do that because it's like more clear that your research probably isn't any good. And so the transparency aspect of analysis forced a lot of people to rein that in and to change what they actually do. And I think that it was like in the false positive psychology paper, they have the the example of like with disclosure and without disclosure. Nobody is just going to write that paragraph where they're like, of 348 analyses that we ran on the 20 different versions of our variables and all these different ones with interactions, these two were significant and blah, blah, blah. You know, nobody wants to write that. And so then when you have to start being transparent about it, you're like, oh, well, we should maybe do this a little differently. Like, we should do the statistical analysis differently than we would have because before we wouldn't, we just would have done all sorts of things. And so I think that it, it does imply. Like if I told you every time you make an instrument up and you don't do anything to pilot it, just tell me what you would do in your next study is be like, oh, well, I probably don't want to write that in the paper. Why don't we pilot this a little bit more? You know, I'll I'll go talk to a few of the people in the hospital and have them read through the items and just see or, you know, you might just. And so that's how this transparency thing ends up like improving rigor because people end up being hesitant to be to say that they did stuff that like now that they're actually thinking about it wasn't that rigorous at the face. They don't want to report that. Um, Though I do think it's acceptable to use an ad hoc or just made up or whatever you want to call it instrument with little development in some cases. I I think it can be acceptable, but I think that people, they first they should hesitate before doing that. You know, they should try to use an established instrument. But they're going to hesitate to say, well, you know, when we're analyzing all these different items, if we group these three together, we got a significant result versus if we group these four together, you know, they're not going to say that. And so that's going to this desire. If we force them to be transparent, they might actually engage in less thoughtless or, you know, less practices that kind of undermine the validity of the study. So I think that's why there's always this pushback against transparency because it ends up making people think through what they're doing more yeah, and like, why would I mean, they do that when they didn't have to do it in the past i mean i think you were i think you were co-author on the the paper was it pre-registration is difficult but worthwhile yeah were you on that? yeah so, yeah and I, and I like that i mean yeah i like that paper and it because that's kind of what i found from from doing it myself a few times i get the first one takes a while because you realize how in in clearly un, imprecisely you thought about what you were doing, at least in my case. And I'm sure there are some people who are perfectly clear and consistent in what they do. But at least in my case, I realized like, well, I thought I knew what I was going to do. But when I actually had to write it down, I realized it was a lot fuzzier in more places than I would have thought before. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I thought I, I would usually do that. Actually, a lot of people might think that's a bad idea. Like you start thinking about how people are going to evaluate it because you're, yeah. you're going to put it all there. It's like, oh, well... No, I was just going to make up the questions about that aspect of it. Maybe I should just do a search and see if there's an instrument available already. Like, you know, you might start to second guess some of those decisions because, you know, other people are going to be seeing them. Whereas before there was all this wiggle room to leave out what was inconvenient. And as we demand more transparency, people don't have as much wiggle room to do that. And I think it kind of pulls the rigor boat up or something, or at least what people think other people want to hear. Yeah, yeah, just that. Yeah, the fear of the the, yeah, the, the, fear. the people asking that is enough. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
yeah, I guess uh, now I understand measurement perfectly and know exactly what to do. Um, yeah, the, I just wanted to talk like briefly about your work with the Psychological Science Science Accelerator. So about this, I know fairly little. I mean, I, I, I think I just saw someone on your website or your CV or something that you were kind of involved in this and that um, I guess I've, I've never taken part in one of those like many labs or I keep forgetting what all these different projects are called. I've never taken part in them. And whenever I see them, I think like, this is this is important work, but I don't know whether I'd want to do it. Like not the replication, but the kind of being part of this like big project where it feels like, it feels like just a lot of admin and that kind of thing and mm -hmm. making sure to all coordinate. You're right. I mean, you're totally stuff. right. <laughs> and to me personally, that's just, I think I, I like the idea of like the, the lone genius sitting in a room and thinking of cool stuff. <laughs> I, I really like just, doing that kind of stuff so i'm just curious yeah kind of kind of maybe what is the the psychological science accelerator you know this can be very brief what's your role and kind of um how did you get involved with doing it or being part uh, of it yeah so the psychological science accelerator is a distributed laboratory network it is hundreds of well thousands of researchers from over a thousand labs who join the network and it doesn't have dues or there's no contract. It's voluntary to join. You can come and go as you please. What the accelerator does is it runs studies. So we have study proposals. If a study proposal is accepted, then we ask our network of labs, hey, do you want to collect data for this study? And so it enables us to run really large studies with labs that are all over the world. So the first one that's now published is a face perception study. We had participants, uh, over 11,000 participants from all populated continents. So it's a voluntary thing, but the people who are in the network, the labs who sign up are interested to participate in the studies sometime, not every study. So we've, we have seven well, we have nine studies right now on the go, plus three COVID rapid studies. So, you know, some labs might participate in just one of those. Some labs might participate in two if it's of interest to them. Sometimes when we accept a new study, labs that do research in that area will sign up because they want to participate in that particular study. It started out... Um, so Chris Chartier started the Psychological Science Accelerator. Maybe it was in 2018. I forget what year, but... It was after a, a SIPS conference, and I had met him there, and we'd been talking about it, and he pitched this idea that, like, we should have a CERN for psychology. Why don't we as psychology kind of work in a big team to pump out really big ideas that are more globally representative? And he had posted a blog post about it, and he wanted to, like, get labs to sign up. And a couple of weeks after that, I saw that he had started to get labs that were signing up from like Europe and in the US and various places internationally. And I called him and I was like, hey, I think you're going to have a lot of complicated data. And this organization is going to need a data and methods committee. It's going to need that kind of forward thinking about the methods and the data. And so that's how I joined. I joined early on, I think there's like 20 of us early on, who were, we put out a call for studies, and we were like reviewing studies. And then as we started going, we thought, well, we need a structure, you know, we need a director and an assistant director and associate directors, and we need, 
kind of like study review processes and study project management processes and data storage and data release procedures. Like it was just getting really big. And basically we just had to inject a lot of bureaucracy in it. And so I've been doing that there now for like four years. Um, We didn't have committees before I came there. You know, I helped us develop them. And I run the data and methods committee. I'm in charge of the methods aspect of it. So we want to make sure that every study has a methodologist that there's somebody with some methodological or statistical expertise on the analysis at hand, that there's an analysis plan or pre-registration. There's some stuff that we want to ensure is happening. And then on the data side, uh, Patrick Forsher helped me. He was the on the ground, I guess, inaugural assistant director for data. He helped develop a lot of the data management and data sharing policies that we have. And so a lot of what I do there is just try to make the whole ship run better. So, like, when we get a study, reviewing the study and making sure somebody on the team knows about the methods. If they don't, find somebody from the network who does know about the methods. Um, Making sure that there's a plan for data release and what format the data are going to be released in. We want to have all of our data be open. We want to share all of that with the community. Um, So I have a little committee. There's people on it. We meet. uh, We talk about ways to make the PSA run better. Something that we're thinking about right now is a way of collating all of our open data so that people who want to access our open data can find it more easily. Right now, it's all in individual project OSF pages. This is not interesting, okay? It's I mean, all the stuff that we do, it's like not interesting. Um, one of the projects that I'm working on, we have translated a lot of instruments, and I've become more and more concerned that the instruments are not equivalent across translated versions. And we haven't done any research to see if they are. So I have two papers on the go with a committee looking at some of our translated instruments and if they're psychometrically or statistically similar across versions. We do a lot of stuff, translation, best practices with our bilinguals. So it's it's not like we're just totally not doing a good job, but we have never like empirically evaluated the instruments and all of the instruments are available and all the data from them are available. So I think there should be something to go along with that to say, this instrument was translated. It's psychometrically very different than the original, or it's psychometrically the same as the original. And a lot of the instruments are in English first, and they're translated all over second. And I think we overestimate the ability to take our Western ideas and translate them in different languages on a survey. Like, I don't think that always works as well as we would think. Um, and so something that I've got more interested in is all of the translated instruments and materials that we generate and how we can empirically evaluate them and how we can develop methods that the whole field can look to for doing this kind of research because research is getting just more and more global. And so basically it's a lot of like doodle polls and Google Docs and Slack messages. We have meetings. I had a meeting um, today with some PSA people over kind of auditing all our studies to see if we can find all the data from all of them. And to see if we can find all the analysis plans or pre-registrations from all the studies. Sometimes people just disappear. They fall off. So we want to, like, find all the people who are supposed to be in charge of all the studies and make sure they're still in charge and that down. they're doing it. I mean, it's it's like the wrangling of the cats or whatever. Yeah, I mean, if, about the translation thing, this is, you know, because I, I was born in English and grew up mainly in Germany. And this is something that for me is really like a sore, not as, I don't know whether it's a sore point, but that's the correct term. But I really don't like translations. And for example, when I read fiction, I, I basically, I've kind of stopped reading translations, which of course limits me then to, I mean, at least two widely spoken languages with lots of speakers and lots of books. Uh, so that's good. Um, but 
I mean, I remember like once there was this uh, supposedly great translation of a book and I just read, just compared the two. I was like, this is just not, it's just a different book. <laughs> this is, yeah. It's I mean, this is exactly like earlier how I was like, yeah, you know, you just wrote the questions. Maybe the people didn't interpret them the way you thought. It's the same thing with translated instruments. You know, you translate yeah. an instrument and you have sure, to reinterpret it and yeah. yeah like sure having a bilingual look through it and say that it, it translated is one thing and that's better than nothing but this idea that we can just translate our instruments and like pick up and use them and we think that they're going to mean the same thing that they meant in the original version this is a huge assumption that all of these large-scale replication projects and team science projects have just they've made that assumption and they haven't evaluated it really at all like none of the mini labs have done any evaluation of the translated versions of their instruments. I have I have a paper out about the many the instruments used in mini labs too, and they, I think it was sixteen languages those instruments were translated into. And we we just so far we're working on a paper looking at the instruments psychometrics and if they're different across translated versions. But in the one paper that's already published, we just have all the reliabilities across the different labs. The translated instruments are less reliable on average kind of expected you know from your experience you're like no you translate the thing and it's totally different or it's not as good or it doesn't have the same meaning yeah i mean I, i'm even talking about english and german too germanic languages that are pretty similar right yeah, countries right, that are right. basically next to each other i'm not talking about russian and yeah, right, brazilian, right. Uh, brazilian portuguese or something or i mean that's even not that close uh, not that far apart if you compare it to like i don't know vietnamese and <laughs> yeah swiss german i don't know yeah that's that's where i'm that's where my thinking is next for these team science things is thinking about how we can be an engine for doing culturally relevant large-scale research instead of just translating instruments that were originally in english so i I think i might i think of myself as working on how to make these instruments better but i think the result of some of this work is just going to be that we can't do that very well and we should and we should quit <laughs> but we'll see yeah. the psa has been doing it and i'm trying to help us kind of get better analysis pipelines for evaluating some of our instruments so we've got a couple projects on the go about that but it's not mostly research that i'm doing over there it's the doodle polls and the applying so for that, grants okay. and slack i mean messages. but that's that's probably because you're uh what you said you have a committee um, yeah, I have a committee. But yeah. <laughs> I, I'm assuming is it? I'm assuming it's less administrative work if you're one of the labs that signed up and said like, "Oh yeah, sure, we want to collect some data." Or whatever. Yeah, exactly right. Um, yeah, the, but then you kind of have to. I mean, I guess is it then you you uh, say these are this is the next project who wants to sign up? Yeah, um, and then you just have to just do that, right? Or, yeah, if you're just like a participating member lab, you could just sign up for a study when you want. You get our mailing list, and so you would just sign up for a study when you want and collect data. You'd be sent like a protocol and told what you have to do to collect the data, and then you would collect the data. Whereas like the people on the leadership team were like thinking about how it should work. You know, should we change from a Google Drive? They were. I think we're going to move over to Canvas as a management platform. You know, should we track study progress in a Google Sheet or should we track it in Slack? How should we meet? Should we meet on Zoom or should we meet on Slack calling? I mean, these are the things that we're concerned about, like all this kind of administrative, like we developed this analysis plan approval process. And when there's a study, it has an analysis plan. We want to check to make sure that it's not like totally bogus. And so the whole, yeah, we we voted. Okay, we have this thing. You got to submit your analysis plan. Well, nobody knows that. 
just the people, like just the 20 people who cared to vote on the issue and decided that we would have an analysis plan approval process. And so now we're like, okay, we have this process. How do we get the study to do it? <laughs> How do we get people to know about it? It's like hard to communicate with anybody because there's so many different people and they're spread around all over the world. And so, yeah, it's it's a lot of just communicating yeah. with people. I wish these things around. were easier. I mean, like I've had, I've had probably at least like one project that i've seriously considered doing which would be like um like i mean i, I do like cooperation and social decision making and there's this from economics and psychology and neuroscience all these like models of how people make decisions and i don't really know how good we are predicting what someone's going to do like if you give someone a prison cinema like how good are we predicting like how good does that model predict what this person's going to do and i just have no idea what the predictive value of these models is is yes um i got my plural and singular correct there um and i've seriously considered doing something like especially because in the cooperation literature there is axelrod's famous tournament where they basically got people to ask which of different strategies would win kind of and get the most points and that kind of stuff so there has been a precedent in the field and i've seriously considered doing something like that but with predicting how good the models are at actually predicting how people behave but every time, you know, I, come, I always think like, this is a really good idea, I should do it. And then it's like, yeah, but <laughs> you're just going to do a lot of admin. And, yeah. 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 But that's the gig, man. The further up you go in this business, the more administration you do. The expense reports. My whole life right now is figuring out the best way to spend my money because it's been a pandemic and my grant money and paying people, making sure the student's computer can run the software. I've booked hotel rooms for grad students before, you know, so they don't have to book it because they don't have money. <laughs> like there's all this, oh, COVID teaching and COVID restrictions in the university during the pandemic. This is all just like administrative work or drudgery. It's administrative <laughs> drudgery. It's not like cool research projects. So you better watch out. But But why did you choose then? to work on a thing that forces you to I do know. exclusively that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean do you so, like doing some of that or is it? I, I like doing some of it. Um, I, I was not like on an academic track for my career and I didn't care if I was an academic or not. Actually, I planned not to be an academic. I didn't even think about being an academic. I didn't even know what one was. So and then I, that plan. yeah, right. I would like, didn't even care about that. But in my postdoc, um, which I took a postdoc for kind of geographical and personal reasons. It made sense for my personal life. Um, I got this opportunity, and so I did. And I got, I started, you know, I went to SIPS and I met, I met these people, and I thought that it was super energizing. I was like learning more about academia and how it worked and how it could work better. And then there were all these people who wanted to like change it and make it work better. And the accelerator is one of those things that I put a lot of time into that doesn't pay the kind of dividends that we traditionally value in academia but there's such a big effect for me of working with people who want to improve our science it kind of like gives me the energy to do the other stuff and having this network of people i don't know they feel like my comrades like i feel like i've those are my people and if i say to them hey we're our translation you know, the empirical evaluation of our translated instruments is something like we really need to work on. They're like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. You know, like, yeah, you're right. We we should be. So it's just like we have this this community and I feel like I'm working on something that matters and that 
can do something really different in the discipline. You know, we're running some of the largest, most globally representative studies in the history of psychology. It's cool to be a small part of that. And even though it is a lot of drudgery, like when I, you know, meet with the people that I meet with and we talk about stuff, it's, it gives me a little, puts sometimes like a little pep in my step, you know, when our first paper was accepted and people from all over the world were sending like little emojis about it being excited. It's like, wow, we, we just did this with over a hundred other people and data all over the world. And you just don't get that. That's not the day to day of academia. And so it, it's, it's a little bit of a pet, pet project for me or passion kind of project sort of thing that I get a lot of value out of it, even though, and it, you know, I, I think, oh, it might not be the traditional academic outcomes but you know I'm, I'm on a really big paper um i've got some grant money re- related to some psa projects so it's not totally counter to what i should be doing as a professor and my my students were working on some research related to the translation stuff so it's got some research paybacks too but it's also just like having that group of people who we like fight with journals about how to publish papers we you know we we, we like push a lot of boundaries like because Sometimes journals, they want to publish our study because it has giant data set, but they want to publish it in a way that we don't like. You know, we've been in fights with Nature Human Behavior, with PNAS. You know, we've been in fights with all these journals to make sure that, like, we can keep our integrity and keep our open science and all the things that we want. It's kind of cool to, like, see a little bit of progress being made through these, like, little incremental wins that we get. We, we've got um, some recent funding couple million dollars from the Templeton Foundation. So it's like, oh, we're like gaining, gaining some traction. So I'm not going to walk off now. I've been doing the Google <laughs> Sheets for four years. So I'm going to keep, keep doing it. Yeah. But you, you can get involved at different levels. You know, you don't have to. I t- probably do more administrative stuff than is necessary. But I, I do kind of like that stuff, even though I complain. Okay, cool. I guess uh, we, we managed to, I mean, I've been, I've been holding you for too long already and yeah. we've, we managed to find a positive ending. So let's just <laughs> stop it there. <laughs> <laughs>